If you would take your scriptures, turn with it, Psalm 95. We'll be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 95. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath. They shall enter, not enter my rest. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning to learn from you. We come because we know how needy we are. It's impossible for us to come into your presence on our own. You have been so gracious to provide us with everything we need to know you. You give us your word, which can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You have told us all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. O Lord, open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your word this morning. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This psalm has no title and is given no author. But we get insight into the author from the author of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4. This psalm is the foundation of what Hebrews is teaching about the true Israel. It is clear that this psalm was used to be, to be used in the calculating of the days of the Messiah. Hebrews 4.7 tells us, He designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Clearly, the author of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said David wrote this song. He also says it is this day that is the day of the Messiah, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the gospel. It is in this day God speaks to us through his Spirit. He is speaking to us in his Son, in a voice that we should be very concerned to hear. He shows us a rest that is beyond the land of Canaan. Canaan was nothing more than a picture of what was to come when the Messiah appeared. The real promised land was heaven itself, where our Messiah would spend eternity with us in a paradise greater than our imaginations could ever comprehend. This psalm calls us to come and worship our Lord. We are to worship him through the reading of his word, the preaching of his word, the singing of his word, and the the reading of his word. This psalm expressly shows the importance of singing his word. 
In the singing of his word, it is intended that we should make melody unto the Lord. We should be here this morning filled with excitement that we can lift our voices in praise to our Lord and Savior. I am concerned that far too many people come to worship as a duty they must do and their hearts are not really in it. I think that is why so many churches have turned to entertaining the congregation and have forgotten they are there to entertain God. Come to this service with your heart alive, alive with a desire to show your love to the God who made you and sent his only begotten son to save your soul. There's absolutely nothing in this world that can make you happier than worshiping your Lord. Ask yourself, is Jesus Christ really the source of your joy in life? Is there anything else in your life that can compete with the joy Jesus gave you at your salvation? If there is, you're in some serious era. And you cannot be worshiping as the scripture has taught you to worship. You must learn the call to worship and what it means. You must teach and admonish yourselves and one another. In this psalm, you're taught and warned to hear God's voice. You must not harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the wilderness, lest you fall under the wrath of God and come short of his rest as the Israelites did. The 95th psalm must be sung with a holy reverence of the Lord's majestic majesty along with a dread of his justice. You must also sing with a heartfelt desire, a desire to please him and with fear of offending him. That's the last thing we want to do is offend our God. Let's open our hearts. Let's make, let's let our minds look deep into the psalm. First, we will see how God is to be praised. Second, we shall learn the duty required of all who come to worship our Lord. What we see in the beginning of this psalm is the stirring up of a passion to praise God. It shows this is a duty we must perform, and we must do it with very lively affection. In the believer's heart, there's a great need for excitement in our praise of God. It's easy for us to become listless and cold in our praise. Let's look into this and learn how God is to be pleased. How we're to praise him. Verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. The first thing we should take note of is that our praise must be with holy joy and delightful to him. The song sung to, be pray, to bring praise must be a joyful noise. In other words, you must shout joyfully. We are aware of the other nations and their singing unto their gods. So we must sing to Jehovah our God, the true and living God. Why is this so important? It's important because we show our love through our songs. We make our admiration known in those songs we sing. We stand before him in reverence as we sing. Therefore, we need to make our singing a constant part of our worship. It is important that we call others to come and sing praises with us. But there is a danger in the use of music. 
too many, too much music has no foundation in the glory of God at all. We see even in what some proclaim is spiritual, nothing more than mindless repetition of phrases from the scripture that center on man and on man's need instead of on God's glory. Such music is sung to man's ears, not God's. It is imperative that our singing is offered with a sincerity of heart and the most fervent purpose of praising Jehovah. In the last second half of verse 1, he says, Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. He tells us. He tells us to come with a holy enthusiasm, singing and making a joyful noise. We must show our earnestness in our singing. It must be filled with joy. We must lift our voices because our spirits have found peace and our hearts are overflowing with love. Charles Spurgeon said, As the children of Israel sang for joy when the smitten rock poured forth its cooling streams, so let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You can read in this first verse a remembrance of the rock, the tabernacle, the parting of the sea, and Mount Sinai. These are things he alludes to in this psalm. What we must see and ever keep before us is that our God is an abiding, immutable, and mighty rock. Our deliverance comes from him and from him alone. Therefore, we must praise him with heart and voice every day. This is especially true of those times we gather for public worship. You must recognize that spiritual joy is the main element of thankful praise. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. By his condescending grace, it is the will of God that we give him, as to the one and only perfect God, all of our praise. It is also mandatory that we shout joyfully to his glory. How are we to praise our God? We are to praise him because he is a great God and he is the sovereign Lord of all. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. God is great. Therefore, he is to be greatly praised. Our God is infinite. He's immense. He has all perfection in himself. Our God is the creator of all things. He made the heavens, the earth, and sea, and everything in them. There is nothing that God has not made. He made the stars in heaven. He created the microscopes that allow us to see the creatures of the deep that are are so small. And he created the high-soaring birds of the air and the giant animals of the sea. He formed man out of the dust of the earth and he breathed life into him. Who are you, O man, to doubt such a God? These other gods have made absolutely nothing. The psalmist says, goes on to say, our Lord is the great king above all gods. There's no king, no lord, no magistrate, no governor, no, no, no leader of any kind that stands as even and equal to our God. Anyone who tries to set himself as a god is nothing but a counterfeiter, a pretender, a usurper that can do absolutely nothing. On that last day, our God will vanquish them all to the fire of lake, the lake of fire. Our God, the great king, has great possessions. 
He has a heaven filled with riches you can't even begin to imagine. The universe he made is bigger than we can comprehend. And as we make stronger and stronger telescopes, we see more and more of this universe, but we only have a smidgen of it. God owns it all from the smallest element of our world to the vastness of space. It all belongs to him. Our God is great. He is great for he is all and in all. He is the great king above all other powers, whether they be angels or princes. All these other so-called dignitaries owe their very life to him. Speaking of these idle gods, they're not worth even mentioning because they are nothing more than a figment of some man's imagination. No allegiance is owed them by anyone. What we see in verses 3 and 4 are some very strong reasons for worship. Verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. Our Lord is the God of the valleys, the highest peaks, the ocean depths, and the rolling hills. He planted the forest, he dug the streams, he dried the desert, and he formed the seas. He sent the rain and snow, he changes the seasons, and sets the times of day and night. Throughout our world and the universe at large, Jehovah's power is felt. All things are under his, the, the dominion of his hand. Know that when an earthly ruler holds a mimic globe in his hands, so our Lord, our God, holds the whole of the earth in his hand. When the Israelites saw the smitten rock being bring forth water, they knew God controlled the deeps of the earth. What we learn from these few verses is the majesty of our Lord. What is it we have discussed that should make our worship and praise grow stronger? That he is the great creator God. That all things, including our meager souls, owe to him all allegiance. As we continue, we hear of the sea, verse 5. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. There's no better account in the Bible to show the truth of this statement than the parting of the sea as the children of Israel left Egypt. The sea lay as a barrier to stop the Israelites from escaping Pharaoh and his army. At the word of God, the sea obediently stood aside to open a path for the children to escape and then fell back into place to destroy Pharaoh and his army. You can also remember in Noah's day, the waters of this earth heard God's call and flooded the whole earth. It says the sea is his, for he made it. The oceans broad, regardless of their name, Atlantic, Pacific, Arctic, or Indian, all belong to God. No man can map them out and lay claim to any part of them. Jehovah rules all the waters of this earth and controls the waves. That extends to the deepest parts where no eye has seen nor diver has set foot. God is the only owner of these waters. No, and they obey him. Neptune is nothing but an agent of imagination. Our Lord is the God of the sea. He made it. It is his, and he alone has right and sovereignty over it. He dug the deepest of its channels. He poured out the waters into their basins. Not one of the bodies of water on this planet was made by chance. He oversaw them all. Spurgeon said, no one 
of not one of their shores was marked out by the finger of fate. God laid it all out. God constructed it exactly as he wanted it to be. Let us praise our God, the maker of heaven and earth and the seas and everything in them. All of this about God as the creator is wonderful, but how do we understand it all when we are under the curse of death because of Adam's sin? Verses 6 and 7a. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. R.C. Sproul says, verse 6 opens to show us our creator as our redeemer. He also, he is also our maker, which refers in this context to God's act of redemption, whereby he created a people for himself and became their king. Then it has to be true that if he is the creator of all, he has to be the owner of all without dispute. So what we are taught in this psalm is to praise Jesus. He is a great God. The mighty God is one of his titles. He is God over all. Blessed be his name. By virtue of his being our mediator, he is a great king above all gods. It is by him that kings reign and angels, principalities, and powers are all subject to him. In the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 3, we're told of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He makes it clear. This world was always with God, and that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ is eternal God. He is the one sent to restore and reconcile all things. Paul shows why it's only right that he's the restorer of all things. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that were in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now he goes on in verse 20 to show how he did this restoring. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ made that peace for us. To him all power is given both in heaven and in earth, and into his hands are all things delivered. Jesus Christ is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is the one who reveals God. He is the one that shows his plans to us, his children. He is the sovereign Lord who, as Revelation 10-2 says, he has set one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth. It is to him that we owe our songs, as, uh, as, so as verse 6 says, let us worship and bow down. Because he is our God, he not only has dominion over us, but over all creatures. In this, we see he has a special relationship with believers. Verse 7a, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The psalmist makes it clear. He is our God. Thus, it is imperative that we praise him or for who will if we don't. Ask yourself, what other reason is there for making us? Why did he make us? He made us so that we would be to him a name and a praise. He's our creator. He's the author of our very being. 
Therefore, as verse 6 says, we must kneel before the Lord our maker. It's interesting to note that idolaters kneel before gods of their own making while we kneel before the God who made us. He has also made the world and everything in it, making him our proprietor, which means he owns us, not we owning ourselves. He is our savior. He is the author of our blessedness. Verse 1 says, he is the rock of our salvation. It is so important that you understand this concept. He is the one who opened his grace and laid the foundation for his glorious gospel. The rock is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came into this world to do for his people what they could never do for themselves. He came and lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory that opened heaven's gate for us. What is required of you in return? Your praise and worship. Open your mouth and your heart and praise the one who has saved your soul. Lift your voice in song and shout with joy at what he has done to set you free from sin and Satan. Come each Sunday morning and join with others to sing praise, to pray with thanksgiving, to hear his word read and preached. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the head of the church, the savior of your soul and the champion of peace. It is through Christ and Christ alone that you can find that peace. He came into this world to do for you what you could never do for yourself. He lived the perfect life. He died the atoning death. He won the resurrection victory. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one should come to the Father except through me. Please hear that. For that is the message of this psalm. That's the message of all of Scripture. That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Go into the world and let the world know you're a child of the living God. Let them know that your church is committed to following the word of God. Never let anyone silence your voice of praise and worship. This sermon is about that call to worship. The call to take your fears and anxieties off your shoulders and put them squarely on Jesus, soldiers. And to stand up straight and to shout joyfully, praising him every day, and especially on Sunday. The last part of this psalm begins in verses 7b through 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. This is a call, a call to an exhortation to sing gospel songs, to live gospel lives, and to hear the voice of God's word. If you don't do these things, how can you expect that God would, should hear your prayers and praise? What is required of those who are the people of Christ's pasture and the sheep of his hands? It is that they listen, as John 10, 27 declares, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you one of his sheep? Have you searched your heart? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Is he the shepherd of your soul? Then hear his voice. If you call him master or Lord, then do what he has called you to do. Obey him in everything. Open your ears and hear his doctrine, his law, his spirit, and take heed and hear his voice and yield to his commands. He calls you to come, to come and worship him. 
Do not allow those opportunities to pass by. Make it your habit to be at worship and sing his praises with others. When his word is being read, sung, prayed, and preached, it is your duty to attend to him for this day of opportunity will not last forever. Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.15 While it is said, today you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Matthew Henry says, hearing the voice of God is the same thing as believing. Believing, simply put, is believing God, is hearing. That's what faith is, hearing God's voice, understanding what it says. It's by faith that you believe in Jesus Christ today. It is a good thing that you believe today because tomorrow it will be too late. I trust you can see that there is nothing more dangerous than delaying to answer God's call. Your eternal soul in its place of rest is clearly at stake. The psalmist warns against this hardening of the heart. You must hear his voice if you want spiritual fruit in your life. The Jews refused to believe in the gospel message he proclaimed. They hardened their hearts against him and his message. The children of Israel refused to see the evil of sin and thus how dangerous sin was to them. That led them to reject the offer of salvation Jesus brought. They would not cast away the yoke of works for the yoke of grace Christ offered. They still today refuse to see that Christ is their true Messiah and the Savior that offers life to the lost. Please understand this. A man hardens his own heart. A man refuses to hear the word that can deliver him from his sin. He alone bears the blame forever. Don't let it be said of you, he would not believe. We find in these next two verses a charge made by God against unbelieving Israel. Verses 9 and 10. When your father tested me, they tried me. Though they saw my work, for 40 years I was grieved with this generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Here, years after God sends, he sends his complaint. He complains of their conduct. He shows his resentment. What was their sin? It was unbelief. They refused to believe. They tempted God. They literally tested him. They proved him. They questioned whether they could trust him or not. They sent spies into the promised land and let those spies discourage them. They refused to believe and stand on his promise. Instead, they sought a captain to lead them back to Egypt. They saw the works of God. They were delivered from Egypt and saw all the miracles that set them free of their slavery. But they would not believe. What did God tell them when was, was the reason for their sin? It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. He says, they have not known my ways. Is that not a good picture of a total depravity of man? God showed them his works from the moment Moses came back to Egypt through the time God prepared them to leave Egypt, through the escape by the sea and in their stop at Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. This group saw more miracles than any other people except perhaps those in the days of Jesus. 
They saw the work of God, yet they refused to believe. They didn't know his ways. The ways of his providence which showed his walking toward them. Nor did they know his commandments in which he would have them walking toward him. They did not know. They did not rightly understand. Look at the sentence passed on them for their sin. Verse 11. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's the sentence passed on them. The wrath of God is a terrible thing for any man to behold. It is the embodiment of hell in the here and now. Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna to describe hell. Gehenna is this violent, disgusting place of filth constantly burning. It's the dumping ground of the city. Jesus uses it to show what awaits those who do not believe in the gospel. Jesus mentions Gehenna at least 11 times in the New Testament, and some of the apostles refer to it as well. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses the word several times. In Matthew 5, he warns that it is far better for the body to endure temporary pain, loss, and destruction, or other maladies here on earth than to suffer an eternity in the destruction of hell. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, If your eye eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. This paints a very graphic picture of what God's wrath will do to those that are brought under it by their sin. It's not a thing anyone should want. So, in his wrath, what does he do? So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. He swore, and that's an oath made by divine God, and it will not be broken. What was the oath? They shall not enter my rest. God had prepared a place of rest for he says in John 14 too, And he promises to take us, those who believe, to be with him in that place. It's prepared and so are the souls of those who come into it. The hearts of those entering that rest are filled with a love for Jesus Christ. There's a spiritual and eternal rest set before us. It's promised to us by the oath of God. The land of Canaan was a type of that rest. By our profession of faith and trust in Christ, we're bound to live in the place of rest. What about the unbeliever? He shall never see this glorious land of peace and rest because his sin bars the door. This psalm was a psalm calling us to worship our God. Those that, like Israel, refuse to worship as God instructs, those that distrust God and his power and goodness and prefer the pleasures of Egypt to the blessings of Canaan, they will justly be cut, shut out from this glorious rest and peace, and they shall find their doom. In the fulfillment of the covenant of works, the place of rest is changed, changed from the land of Canaan to heaven. Also works are changed, changed as a path to salvation to the covenant of redemption where Christ becomes the one and only path to heaven. The call to worship is a call to life in Jesus Christ. 
Open your hearts and place your hope in Christ. For there is no other way to enter the promised rest of God. To fail in this is to assure a place for you in the depths of hell. Our God is a gracious and merciful God who is full of compassion for his creatures. He has called all men to hear and believe. Please don't be one who hardens your heart against him. Open your heart. Open your heart and hear his voice. For it alone is the call of love to your soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for calling us to come and worship you. Help us to worship you as you have called us to do. Grant us the ability to rejoice in all you do for us. Fill our hearts with your love and guidance. We know that the salvation of our souls comes not through works, but through Jesus Christ. Help us to ever keep on our focus on Jesus and all he did. We need you in our hearts if we're to walk with you. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.